Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, bringing your whole self to work in severance. I'm Paula Sizik, and today I'm joined by Senior Director of Organizational Change, Emily Logan. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Toya Johnson-Moore, Head of HR. Hi there. We are members of Nobel, a global change agency that transforms company cultures. And every month we like to take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations. This month, we're discussing the first three episodes of Severance, a new show on Apple TV. And Dr. T, this was actually your suggestion. So why don't you give us a little summary of what Severance is about? Mark Scout, he lives two lives, but his two lives never intertwine. He's gone through this severance procedure. So when he's at work, he doesn't remember his personal life. And when he's at home, he doesn't remember his work life. So when a former coworker shows up after work hours, he starts to question what his any really is doing. And it starts to unravel some of the mysterious work of Lumen. Lumen's actually a really interesting company to discuss right now because it's very much a classic suburban office complex. You've got a big glass building surrounded by a sea of parking lots built for hundreds or maybe even thousands of employees. It's, it's hard to tell exactly how many people work there. And after two years of remote work, I personally was really surprised to see dozens of people walking around an open space without wearing masks. I imagine this is actually a, a similar circumstance to a lot of people who are thinking about returning to the office right now. What does return to office look like? What should leaders be thinking about? I think the experience and environment design is a really interesting thing to think about, especially when you're looking at this show. I mean, the first one of the first scenes is him walking through what feels like five minutes of just blank white walls. And and the cubicles to me really feel like the plastic separators that were put in place for many people who are in the office. So what does it really look like for an organization to create what now should be a reasonable sort of break from your everyday home life? And I think this idea that everything has to happen at your workplace, like you're going to live at your workplace. So you have all these perks and you have a, a cafeteria and you have all these different things. Like, I think that idea is dead. We've now been home for so long that maybe we want a break and we want to go to the office for a few days uh, or a few hours a day. But I think this idea that we're going to be living at the office just needs to be rethought. How do we design offices to have a little bit more soul than what the severance offices have? Yes, it's kind of like remind me of going in like a doctor's office <laughs> and that's not necessarily the vibe you want to have going to work. Usually folks dread, right, going to the doctor, or going to the dentist. It definitely felt super retro. I remember walking through one of my relatives workspaces that was like a little mini cubicle farm and that was back in the 90s. And so I can't even imagine today 
designing an office that looks like the one at Lumen. It, the excitement of returning to work is the connecting with other people part. And so to walk through all these halls and have no idea who works there at the same place was very odd and strange for me to see. And I can't imagine doing your best work at a place like that. There's something really sinister about mid-century modern design. I think it's really interesting. It's used as shorthand for like evil bond villain soulless corporation all the time. <laughs> One of these days, I'm definitely going to do a video about it. What should leaders be thinking about though? If you're announcing to your team, hey, we're going to be coming back to the office. What are people worried about? What should you be communicating as a leader? Maybe that balance of when we're on and at work and when is there free time, time to build that connection. This whole, when you're at work, you're working nine to five is very limiting to the human experience. You, you know, we strive on connection and you usually have at least something in common with the folks that you work with or else you all wouldn't be working there. So leaders should be clear about that difference is really like, like when we're at work or meeting, what that culture is really like. When might you have the free time and what you can do with that? Are there places around to go to grab interaction and coffee or tea or just chat? Are there places within your space that could be great for folks to just have many get to know you style meetings? Think about how you can maximize the space and opportunity that you have now being together because we've all been missing that throughout the pandemic for sure. Yeah, I love that, Dr. T. And I would just add leaders can think about what the different ways in which work gets done are and how the workplace is gonna be serving that, right? So to your point, these places where we need to connect and we need to have some water cooler time again because, oh my gosh, we missed that so much. But what does collaboration look like? Are we gonna have hybrid workplaces? We're gonna have some people on screen, some virtual stickies, some real stickies. <laughs> you know, We're gonna have big groups of people in certain places. We're gonna need the one-on-one -on -one times. Just being really cognizant that collaboration looks different now and how can we really build in good structures and systems, not just environmentally, but technology and ways of working together that facilitate those kinds of conversations. Let's actually talk a little bit about what you just brought up, Emily, this idea of connection, because of course, severance is about the opposite of that. It is about splitting your life into two very different sections. Several of the characters in Severance actually think of this procedure as a solution to work-life balance, right? You've got no outside life when you're at work, and you essentially forget about work when you're out. I would actually argue a more accurate concept of this is the philosophy of bringing your whole self to work. What do we mean when we say that? What does that look like in real life? You know, you're actually bringing that self to work. You really can't bring your full self to work if you have the severance procedure, in my opinion, because you don't really know who you are if you have no recollection of your memories, your interactions outside of work. Do you really have a concept of your identity if you're not sure who you really even are? So it's kind of hard to bring your whole self to work if you really don't know what you are who you are in real life and no idea of how you operate in the real world 
quote unquote. As a solution to work-life balance, yes, it's great to maybe turn that side of you off, but the philosophy of bringing your whole self to work is, isn't really there if you don't have a whole idea of who you really are. And in the show, they actually have names for these two different selves. You've got your innies, who are who you are when you're in the workplace, and you've got your outies, right, who are outside the workplace. So you might hear us referring to innies and outies throughout this podcast. The way that the severance environment is set up is actually kind of old-fashioned. Don't show any emotion at work. Don't bring any anger. You have to just show up in this very professional way, right? And so I think that's a lot of what made people want to just kind of have this bifurcation between their work life and their home life and that their work life, they were not themselves at all. They were just this very stark professional version of themselves. And then when they went home, they were allowed to sort of let loose and that sort of thing. But I think this bringing your whole self to work idea in real life starts to look like humans are humans. We have emotions. We have opinions about things. We might not love the company 24 <laughs> seven. Uh, yeah, what? Paul's That's not the like, case what? at Nobel though, right? We do <laughs> at Nobel 24 seven, we're involved. Oh, yes, right. 37, we love Nobel. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like can't expect your employees to just toe the line, be a professional, perfect version of themselves every hour of every day. And so I think this severance idea feels like wanting to return to that in some ways or wanting to force that in a really extreme way. Definitely. And you see them um, making up identities about what their Audi is doing. I guess I went home last night, but I don't know if home is a house or an apartment or if I live with a family. I like to think my Audi lives on like a riverboat. But you really don't know what you're doing, though. So somebody could catch you on the street and say, did you know what happened X, Y, Z? And you have no, the idea of not knowing, I guess, what I'm doing in any environment is very scary for me. I don't think I'd be able to do the separate procedure personally. The flip side of that argument is how much should coworkers know about you or how much is too much to share at the office because on the one hand sure you want to be yourself you want to be human but there's also a sense of vulnerability in sharing those activities we actually see this during one of the welcome activities for a new employee heli hello i'm heli i've been at lumen for like 10 hours total and i'm sorry i don't i don't know anything about myself well sure you do heli I really don't. They are supposed to share something personal about their lives, but of course they can't share anything beyond their work lives. They can only share what they know about themselves at work. So my question to you is, what's too much or what's too vulnerable? How do you find the right balance between being authentic and true to yourself, but also protecting yourself? I loved this scene so much and it pained me that I do these activities on a regular basis. <laughs> and so as I was watching it, I was just cringing on the inside, like, oh my goodness, what do I subject people to? But <laughs> So I guess this is a bad time for me to throw a red ball and have you share something about yourself. <laughs> the sharing stick, I think I, I'm, I'm holding it right now. But I think it's really interesting 
to think about how psychological safety is built within groups because psychological safety is built with sharing who you really are, sharing some things that maybe have nothing to do with work, but are just about how you're feeling in that moment or what's going on in your life. I've experienced in my own work that when someone gets really vulnerable, it can be a pivotal point in that group's psychological safety and in everyone's really understanding each other. But when we talk about vulnerability, and how vulnerable we can be. Brene Brown actually has a really great example of this where she's working with a CEO and the CEO shares that he just has no idea what he's doing and has no idea where to bring the company. And that's too much, right? You need to think about context. You need to think about what people are going to perceive about those different things. But in my mind, it just comes a lot back to what are you comfortable sharing? What do you want your coworkers to know that's important to you? and that will help you to build better relationships. I struggle with this too, mainly because the HR in me is always cautious about how comfortable folks may feel sharing different aspects of themselves. I go with safety first with keeping it PG because there can be some things that folks are comfortable sharing about their private lives that maybe is inappropriate for an office setting. I would say, yes, be comfortable with sharing those things, but also keep in mind that perhaps some personal things are better left for outside of the office than for sharing with your coworkers. At Nobel, we often start our meetings with a check-in. We go around the room and everybody just shares what's on their mind, what might be distracting them. I've actually seen, though, with some clients, some people opt out. They actually say, I really don't like this activity. I don't feel comfortable sharing. I don't care what sandwich you've been eating. As a leader, how do you respond to that? Should you force people to participate? Should you allow them to opt out? How does that impact the overall psychological safety of the team? I think allowing them to opt out is okay, but I would really want to understand why they're opting out. Are they opting out because they're not safe? They don't feel safe. They don't feel like they can share anything that's real and they just feel frustrated by that. Or are they just opting out because they think it's a dumb activity and and it sort of disengages them? The answer is that one. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes we never know, right? Sometimes what happens in someone's private life, it's kind of hard to turn off what may personally be affecting you. And when you're asked to participate in an activity, even though it may seem super low stakes, let's just say you're going through a divorce and you really feel like being super vulnerable or open with your coworkers in that moment. This is where I turn to thinking about how can we support our coworkers in wellness activities and sharing mental health resources with them? Because sometimes an activity may be fun or low stakes, or we may think everybody's able to participate. And then maybe there's something they're going through that just means that they need to take some time to themselves a little bit or aren't really ready to participate right now. And a leader just being able to be cognizant of we are humans, we have our work life, we have a personal life, we have multiple things going on that we're dealing with. How can I show up in a way that's going to be supportive of them, not give them too much pressure, but also just show them that I'm here for them as a human for whatever they may need or be comfortable sharing in that moment. This idea of being able to just turn off, right? When I leave work, I leave work issues at work and I can focus on what's going on in my personal life. 
there's definitely some benefits, right? You can see why that would be compelling undergoing the severance procedure. But the flip side of that is a true work-life balance issue in that you always feel like you're at work, right? If you can never remember your outside life, you can't even remember sleeping, you always feel like you're at work. If, to your point, Emily, it really does feel like people are truly living at the office. And I think a lot of people are actually experiencing sort of the flip side of this in that you're working at home all the time, especially during the pandemic. You've got 24-7 connectivity. It can really feel like you're always working. How does this contribute to burnout? How do leaders address this with their teams so it doesn't feel like you're always in the office? It's a perfect recipe for burnout. I think if you can't even separate yourself physically from the work that you're doing, or you leave one room and go into the other room in order to quote unquote log off from your job, it doesn't sometimes feel like you're even leaving your work. And I think the best way that leaders can support this is to model it, right? Don't respond to emails at 9 p.m. Don't slack your employees at midnight and expect that they're going to have a project done by the next morning. There's some really simple technological things that when we always feel connected, we're expected to be responsive all of the time. And when a leader shows that they have their own boundaries around that, that's really, really powerful. I think that's the most important thing. Absolutely. And especially as companies become more global and remote, this idea of who's at work and working hours gets kind of blurred because you're all in different time zones a little bit. Leaders can help by helping their employees know working hours in their different time zones. A lot of times people don't want to interrupt someone's sleeping hours or late night hours, but they maybe don't no. So what can we do, like you were saying, Emily, with technology and tools to help us know, okay, this person's working hours aren't great. Now Slack has us has the option for folks to schedule messages. Our emails do that. Can we remind folks that we can schedule things within someone's working hours? It's okay that you decide when you want to work. I get that. As a leader, sometimes you're packed in meetings and you want to spend other hours wrapping things up before you forget, totally understand that. But how can we help your team know, as you said too, Emily, about boundaries, setting those boundaries, setting expectations. Like, I know I'm sending this to you late, but don't reply. That's always a great line to slide in there. And then also individually, right? Sometimes we get ourselves into this pattern of working late, trying to get it all done having this always on mentality, especially if you're always working in your home space, you really don't know sometimes about how to shut yourself off. And so I'm a big proponent of taking breaks throughout the day, using that time to disengage from work because you can get yourself feeling like always on and that drains you over time. That leads to burnout culture. Breaks are okay throughout the day. Make sure you take them. You know, maybe you want to go for a walk. Maybe you want to take this meeting while you're going for a walk. All of that are great suggestions that leaders can do and make to help ease this kind of burnout culture. Lumen also leaves a lot to be desired when it comes to meaning and impact, right? People don't really know what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis or even how it affects their outside lives. So instead, what we see is a poor incentive system like giving away finger traps or waffle parties. Waffle parties are big at Lumen. 
So that's the highest award? Percentage-wise, yes, but if we hit our numbers by quarter's end, one of us gets named refiner of the quarter, and that shit gets you a waffle party. I'm sorry, a waffle party? Okay, hazard's on, eager lemur. I'm a deadlock for that this quarter, so uh, don't get your hopes up. And we know from research that high-performing teams actually have a clear sense of meaning and impact. So how can you give your teams a real sense of purpose? How do you connect seemingly inconsequential, possibly repetitive tasks to a greater sense of mission? I think like we saw in Lumen, if you don't give them the sense of purpose or explain to them what they're really doing, they'll make it up. So we send the probes down, they send us the data coded, we sense what's eels, and then we tell the probes what to blow up. This is the leading theory? Now, Irv thinks we're cutting swear words out of movies. And sometimes when they make it up, it may be something that is a positive or a negative. And so it's better that you, as a leader, as a company, make sure that your reason for being is something that they want to give and spend the majority of their lives doing. Because sabotage is real. And if it's something that doesn't align with their values or they can't see the purpose behind, it's something that they could end up leading to a toxic workplace a leader is trying to create. And so you've got to give them a reason, give them a purpose connected to something higher, even if it means making it up, because they will do it for you and it can have really negative consequences. The meaning of life is just as important as the meaning of work. And that's why we often admire seeing folks live out their true passion and we get inspired by that. I love that, Dr. T. And I think that you can co-create those stories with your employees. You can figure out how to make the story of your company the story of them, right? And the story of the work that they're doing, especially when the work is so disconnected from the customer or from the core purpose of the company. It can be really hard to get those employees to really feel like their work has impact. And we certainly see that in Severance where they're literally looking at numbers that are just meant to be scary to them, but they don't actually know what they are. And one of the things that they try in the show is they bring folks to the perpetuity wing, right? Which is this wax museum of old CEOs. James Egan, current CEO. Remarkable man. Handsome too. See those brows? I was cringy for obvious reasons, but part of it is also cringy because companies do this, right? They put their executives and their CEOs on pedestals and they think that hearing this story is going to be inspiring to their employees. And I think stories can be inspiring, but you can't create purpose for your employees by touting the stories of a bunch of other people who are in completely different places than you are. And I just think that was such a strange way to motivate folks, but companies actually do do that. So speaking of stories, the origin of Nobel actually comes <laughs> from a story of Alfred Nobel. It's apocryphal. There's no evidence that this really happened, but basically Alfred Nobel read a obituary that said the merchant of death is dead. Nobel had actually invented dynamite and so was used for, for weapons and for killing people. And he was shocked by this. He was like, is this going to be my legacy? Is this what people remember me for? 
But that's that's actually what inspired our founder to name the company after Nobel. And you actually see that there is one of the creepy wax figure CEOs. I know that death is near upon me because people have begun to ask what I see as my life's great achievement. So how does leaving a legacy play into how you show up at work? I think that's a tricky one because I think we have very high expectations of ourselves and of others. And I worry that that contributes to burnout and contributes to folks being hard on themselves. And I think if leaving a legacy is something that's really exciting to you and you're passionate about, then sure, great. That's a powerful thing. And like the story that you told, Paula, it can be really powerful to hear these stories and hear about other people's legacies. But I tend to want to squelch that ever so slightly and just say it's okay to be a human and to want to have a family and do good work and have leisure time and whatever it is that that you are passionate about doesn't have to be about leaving a legacy necessarily. You know, it <laughs> reminds me of starting at Nobel, actually. And one of our first tasks that we give our new hires is writing your own obituary. And I was definitely like, what? <laughs> I'm thinking about I'm dying right when I'm joining a new place. But you yeah, are reborn I, with right, a Nobel. Right, exactly. Leave your old self behind. No, it was actually a very cathartic experience, honestly, because you kind of think about, okay, I'm starting this new chapter. This is a new opportunity for me to learn new things, meet new people, add some, hopefully some really great accomplishments to my resume, right? Like this is, that's the point of work. And you think about the legacy that you want to leave, not only at work and your lifelong passion, but also in how you want to impact others on a personal level, on a human level, how you want people to feel about the impact that you've made on their lives. And so tying your values to the legacy that you want to leave and letting that define your decision making and then living by those decisions, I think is very important. And I, I can't see how you really do that if you're severed. <laughs> do you really know who you really are in order to really impact this decision-making part of tying everything to your values? I still am baffled by the decision they made to be severed. We used to wonder what kind of men we were on the outside, what choices we had made and why. I used to think it would take a monster to put someone in a place like that office. Especially if the person was himself. So to that point, last question. Mark has brought us in to consult specifically for his department, the Macrodata Refining Department at Lumen. What would we recommend first? How would we work with the team? So I'm really into, I think, interviewing leadership first. I'm very curious, how high does the deception go? Because we know they're lying to the Lumen team about what they're doing. I mean, really these numbers, I just imagine what they're really doing when they're like, yeah, I found it and I'm dragging it here. Like, what really are you doing? And is it just the a couple of higher ups that know 
What about the other departments? Do they have any insight into what the other departments are doing or what the higher ups are really doing? And it's very strange to me that the board never speaks. They only speak through others and we never really hear them talk. Okay, so the board is conveying pretty strongly that the severance procedure is provenly irreversible. Yes. And that this knowledge should be a given for a person managing a severed floor. Yes, of course. While, of course, getting MTR to their projected numbers by the quarterly deadline in three weeks? Yes, of course. We are quickly rekindling our yield down here with our nimble new refiner. And for what it's worth, the I board has concluded the call. So I have to start with interviewing leadership. I would love to have some roles and responsibilities on the team. I think it would be great to give, is it Herb, the, one of the roles of being the onboarding specialist and maybe he goes around and provides tours all day, every day. He would love that, you know. Someone else is gonna be a trainer and can point out, this is really what you're looking for. Maybe they need to make a training guide. One is maybe an engagement leader. I think that's what they're missing. They're missing some roles, some responsibilities that give themselves some purpose outside of just dragging and dropping these numbers in there. I love it. Can we also give Harmony and Milchuk major executive coaching? Because I think they need all of the help they can get. Harmony is terrifying. Yes, yeah, she threw a mug yeah. at Mark. Like, who does that? All right. The other question that I was going to ask at the end is, if you had to weaponize one piece of office equipment, what would it be oh. and why? But I was like, that's a little off topic from our from this podcast. <laughs> Let's get back to this idea of harmony. What sort of executive coaching would you like to see? How would that impact the team as a whole? Oh, boy. She needs a lot of emotional intelligence help. A lot of it comes back to what the F do they do? You know, what is her goal? What's her motivation? She's clearly shady. She's clearly has all kinds of motivations and intentions. And I want to get into that psyche. <laughs> Yeah. And culture is created by leaders, right? So is she the base of this? Is there this executive guy that we keep kind of seeing his face on the walls? Who's creating this crazy, violent, yet unacceptable to have any emotion culture? Right. We can't forget, of course, the break room. I'm thinking, okay, break room. This is going to be great. You go in there. It's literally like prison. I cannot believe that this is what we're calling the break room these it's where days. they break you <laughs> exactly 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 i would need to get rid of that room i think that if i was brought in as a consultant like no more break room or actually make it like what a break room really is not super healthy yeah right maybe the first time nobel actually does recommend ping pong tables as an addition to the culture right what a change that would be Thanks for listening to Work of Fiction. Don't forget to subscribe for future updates and leave us a rating if you like what you heard. Find more episodes or get in touch at workoffiction.fm.